0: Section 8 of Rough and Ready, or Life Among the New York Newsboys, by Horatio Alger, Jr. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tori Falder. Chapter 15. Introduces a Distinguished Personage Times! Herald! Tribune! World! cried Rough and Ready from his old place in front of the Times building. All the news that's going on for only four cents! That's cheap enough, isn't it? Have a paper, sir! "'I don't know. Is there any particular news this morning?' asked the individual addressed. "'Yes, sir, lots of it. You will find ten cents' worth in every one of the papers, which will give you a clear profit of six cents on your investment. Which will you have?' "'Let me look at the paper a minute, and I'll see.' "'I don't do business that way,' said the newsboy. "'Not since one morning when I let an old gentleman look at a paper for just a minute. He read it for half an hour and then returned it, saying there wasn't much in it, and he guessed he wouldn't buy.' well here's your money give me the times said the other here you are said the newsboy pocketing the money and placing a times in the hand of the purchaser give me the herald said another unfolding the paper he glanced his eye over it and said in evident disappointment i heard there was a railroad accident somewhere with about fifty persons killed and wounded but i don't see it anywhere I'm sorry you're disappointed, said the newsboy. It's soothing to the feelings to read about a smash-up with lots of persons killed and wounded. Just come along tomorrow morning, and I guess you'll find what you want. What makes you think so? asked the customer suspiciously. If you won't mention it, said Rough and Ready, lowering his voice, I don't mind telling you that the Herald has sent up a reporter to put a big rock on the Erie Road and throw off the afternoon train. As he will be on the spot, he can give a full report exclusive for the Herald, then again, the Times and Tribune are arranging to get up some horrid murders. Maybe they'll have them in tomorrow's paper. You'd better come round and buy them all. I'll make a discount to a wholesale customer. It's my belief that you're a humbug, said the disappointed customer. Thank you, sir, said Rough and Ready. I've been taking lessons of Barnum, only I haven't made so much money yet. The next customer asked for the Tribune. Here it is, sir. Did you ever see Mr. Greeley, he inquired, I live in the country, and I have often thought I should like to see so intrepid a champion of the people's rights. There he is now, said the newsboy, pointing to a somewhat portly man who had just got out of a horse car. You don't say so, ejaculated the country reader of the Tribune. I should like to go and shake hands with him, but he might take it as too great a liberty. I didn't know he was so stout. Go ahead, said the newsboy. He won't mind. He's used to it i think i will i should like to tell the folks at home that i had shaken hands with horace greeley now it happened that the personage who had been pointed out as horace greeley was really no other than mr barnum himself the illustrious showman the newsboy was well aware of this and was led to make the statement by his desire to see a little fun i shall not attempt to justify him in this deception but i have undertaken to set rough and ready before the reader as he was not as he ought to be and though a good boy in the main, he was not without faults. Mr. Greeley's admirer walked up to Mr. Barnum and grasped his hand cordially. "'Sir,' he said, "'I hope you'll excuse the liberty I am taking, but I couldn't help addressing you.' "'I am glad to meet you, sir,' said Mr. Barnum courteously. "'Perhaps I have met you before, but I meet so many people that I cannot always remember faces.' "'No, sir, we have never met before, but your fame has reached our village.' Indeed, I may say, it has spread all over the country, and when I was told who you were, I could not help coming up and telling you how much we all sympathize with you in your philanthropic efforts. Mr. Barnum looked somewhat perplexed. He was not altogether certain whether his temperance lectures were referred to or his career as manager of the museum. He answered, therefore, rather vaguely, I try to do something to make the world happier. I am very glad my efforts are appreciated. "'Yes, sir, you may be certain they are appreciated throughout the length and breadth of the land,' said the other fervently. "'You are very kind,' said Barnum, "'but I am afraid you will not get all to agree with you. "'There are some who do not view me so favourably. "'Of course, such is always the fate of the philanthropist. "'There are some, no doubt, who decry you, but their calumnies are unavailable. "'Truth crashed to earth will rise again. "'I need not continue the quotation.' "'You are certainly very complimentary, Mr. Perhaps you will oblige me with your name. "'Nathan Bedloe. I keep a seminary in the country. I have read the Tribune for years, Mr. Greeley, and have found in your luminous editorials the most satisfactory exposition of the principles which I profess.' Mr. Barnum's eyes distended with astonishment as he caught the name Greeley, and his facial muscles twitched a little. "'How did you know me?' he asked." "'That newsboy pointed you out to me,' said the other, indicating rough and ready, who was watching with interest the conversation between the two. "'Yes, the newsboys know me,' said Barnum. "'So, you like the Tribune?' "'Yes, sir. It is an admirable paper. I would as soon do without my dinner as without it.' "'I am very glad you like it,' said Barnum, "'but I fear my own contributions to it,' referring to the advertisement of the museum, "'are not worthy of such kind compliments.' I must bid you good morning at present, as my engagements are numerous. I can easily believe it, Mr. Greeley. Goodbye, sir. Thank you for your kind reception of an humble stranger. There was another shaking of hands, and Mr. Bedloe departed under the firm conviction that he had seen and talked with Horace Greeley. Three minutes later, rough and ready, felt a hand upon his shoulder. Lifting up his eyes, he recognized Mr. Barnum. Do you know me? Asked the latter. Yes, sir. You are Mr. Barnum. "'Were you the boy who pointed me out as Horace Greeley?' "'Yes, sir,' said Rufus, laughing. "'But I didn't think the man would believe it.' "'He thinks so still,' said Barnum. "'I don't think there's much personal resemblance between me and the editor of the Tribune,' he continued meditatively. "'No, sir, not much.' "'Don't do it again, my lad. "'It's wrong to humbug people, you know. "'By the way, do you ever come to the museum?' "'Yes, sir.' "'Well, your joke is worth something. "'Here's a season ticket for three months.' He handed the newsboy as he spoke a slip of paper on which was written, admit the bearer to any performance in the museum during the next three months. P.T. Barnum. I got off better than I expected, thought Rough and Ready. I didn't know but both of them would get mad and be down upon me. I wish he'd given me a ticket for three and I'd have taken Miss Manning and Rose along with me. As he thought of Rose, it was with a feeling of satisfaction that she was so well provided for. He had the utmost confidence in Miss Manning, and he saw that a mutual affection had sprung up between her and his little sister. "'It'll be jolly when Rose grows up and can keep house for me,' he said to himself. "'I hope I'll be in some good business then. Selling papers will do very well now, but I want to do something else after a while. I wonder whether that $300 I've got in the bank wouldn't set me up in some kind of business.' While these thoughts were passing through his mind, he still kept crying his papers, and presently he had sold the last one. It was still comparatively early, and he thought he would look about a little to see if there was no chance of earning a little extra money by running on an errand. After a while, he was commissioned to carry a message to 22nd Street, for which he was to receive twenty-five cents and his car fares. I'll walk back, he thought, and in that way I'll save six cents out of the fares. The walk being a long one, he was absent a considerable time, especially as he stopped for a while at an auction on Broadway. At last he reached his old stand and was thinking of buying some evening papers, when he heard his name called in a tone of anxiety. Turning suddenly, he recognized Miss Manning. "'Miss Manning!' he exclaimed in surprise. "'How do you happen to be here?' "'I came to see you, Rufus.' "'Has anything happened?' he asked anxiously, "'seeing the troubled expression of her countenance. "'Nothing is the matter with Rose, is there?' "'She has gone. Gone? Yes, she has disappeared. "'Don't say that, Miss Manning. Tell me quick all about it. "'I sent her out on an errand this morning, "'just around the corner, for a spool of cotton, "'and she has not got back. "'Do you think she lost her way? "'She couldn't very well do that. It was so nearby. "'No, Rufus, I'm afraid she's been carried off by your stepfather.' what makes you think so miss manning demanded rufus in excitement i waited half an hour after she went out wondering what could keep her so long then i began to feel anxious and put on my bonnet and slipped downstairs into the street i went round to the store and found she had gone there and made the purchase and gone away directly i was wondering what to do next when one of the neighbours came up and said she saw rose dragged away by a tall man she gave me a description of him and it corresponds exactly to the description of mr martin I am afraid, Rufus, that he has carried our dear little Rose away. What shall we do? I'll have her back, said Rufus energetically. He's got her now, but he shan't keep her. But I'm afraid, he added sorrowfully, she'll be ill-treated before I can recover her. Poor Rose. Chapter sixteen. How Rose fared. We return to Rose, who found herself very unwillingly once more in the custody of her stepfather. "'Go out and play in the backyard with Fanny,' said Mrs. Waters. "'You'll have a nice time together and be good friends in less than no time.' Rose followed Fanny slowly into the backyard, but she had very little hope of a good time. She was too full of sorrowful thoughts for that. As she looked back a moment after going into the yard, she saw Mr. Martin shaking his fist at her from the back window, and this she understood very well was a sign of the treatment which she had to expect.' The backyard was not a very pleasant place. It was very small to begin with, and the little space was littered with broken bottles and rubbish of various kinds. In one corner was a cistern, nearly full of water, which had been standing long enough to become turbid. "'What shall we do?' asked Fanny. "'I don't know,' said Rose, without much interest. "'I'll tell you,' said Fanny. "'We'll take a piece of wood and sail it in the cistern. We can make believe it's a ship.' "'You can do it,' said Rose. "'Won't you play, too? "'I don't feel much like playing.' "'Why don't you?' asked Fanny curiously. "'I wish I was back in New York.' "'Who were you with?' "'With Rufy.' "'Who's he?' "'My brother.' "'Is he a nice boy?' "'Yes, he's the nicest boy that ever lived,' said Rose positively. "'Your father says he's a bad boy.' "'He isn't my father.' "'Isn't your father?' "'No, he's only my stepfather.' Rose was about to say something against Mr. Martin, but it occurred to her that if it came to the ears of the latter, she might fare the worse for it, and accordingly she stopped short. Fanny picked up a stick and began to sail it about in the cistern. After a while, Rose went up and looked on rather listlessly. At length, Fanny got tired of this amusement and began to look around for something better to do. In the corner of the yard, she spied the cat, who was lying down in a lazy attitude, purring contentedly as she dozed i know what i'll do she said i'll have some fun with puss she lifted the sleepy cat and conveyed her straightway to the cistern this attracted the attention of rose who exclaimed what are you going to do i am going to see puss swim said the mischievous girl now rose had a tender heart and could not bear to see an animal abused it always aroused all the chivalry in her nature and her indignation in the present case overcame not only her timidity but the depression she had felt at the separation from her friends You shan't do it, she said energetically. Mind your business, said Fanny defiantly. It's my cat, and I'm going to put her into the water. True to her declaration, she dropped the cat into the cistern. Rose waited for no more, but ran to the cistern, and pushing Fanny forcibly away, seized the cat by her neck and pulled her out. Puss, on being rescued, immediately took to her heels and soon was out of harm's way. "'What did you do that for?' exclaimed Fanny, flaming with rage. "'You had no right to put the cat in the water,' retorted Rose intrepidly. "'I'll put you in the water,' said Fanny. "'I wish you were drowned.' "'You're a bad girl,' said Rose. "'I won't play with you. "'I don't want you to. "'I don't care about playing with a girl that behaves so. "'I behave as well as you do anyway. "'I don't want to talk to you any more.' This seemed to exasperate Fanny, who, overcome by her feelings, flew at Rose and scratched her in the face. Rose was very peaceably inclined, but she did not care about submitting to such treatment. She therefore seized Fanny by the hands and held them. Unable to get away, Fanny screamed at the top of her voice. This brought her mother to the door. "'What's going on here?' she asked in a voice of authority. "'She's fighting me!' said Fanny. "'Take her away!' "'Let go my child at once, you wicked girl,' said Mrs. Waters, whose sympathies were at once enlisted on the side of her child. "'Then she mustn't scratch me,' said Rose. "'What did you scratch her for, Fanny? "'She's been plaguing me. "'How did she plague you? "'I was playing with puss, and she came and took the cat away and pushed me.' "'You are a bad, quarrelsome girl,' said Mrs. Waters, addressing Rose. "'And I'm sorry I told your father you might come here.' He told me you were bad, but I didn't think you would show out so quick. If you were my girl, I'd give you a good whipping. As it is, I shall inform your father of your conduct as soon as he gets home, and I have no doubt he will punish you. I only tried to prevent Fanny from drowning the cat, said Rose. She threw her into the water, and I took her out. That's a likely story. I don't believe it. Is it true, Fanny? No, it isn't, said Fanny, whose regard for truth was not very strong. "'So, I suppose, you have not only ill-treated my girl, "'but you have told a wrong story besides. "'Fanny, come in, and I will give you a piece of cake. "'You won't give her any, will you, Ma?' "'No, she don't deserve any.' "'With a look of triumph, Fanny went into the house, "'leaving poor Rose to meditate in sorrow "'upon this new phase of injustice and unhappiness. "'It seemed as if everybody was conspiring "'to injure and ill-treat her. "'I wish Rufy were here,' she said, "'so that he might take me away.' Then came to her mind the threat of her stepfather, and she shuddered at the idea of Rufus being killed. From what she knew of Mr. Martin, she didn't think it very improbable that he would carry out his threat. After a while she was called to dinner, but she had very little appetite. "'So you're sullen, are you, miss?' said Mrs. Waters. "'You're a bad girl, and if I were your father I'd give you a lesson, so you won't eat.' "'I am not hungry,' said Rose.' I understand very well what that means. However, if you don't want to eat, I won't make you. You'll be hungry enough by and by, I guess. The afternoon passed very dismally to poor Rose. Fanny was forbidden by her mother to play with her, although this Rose didn't feel at all as a privation. She was glad to be free from the company of the little girl whom she had begun to dislike and spent her time in brooding over her sorrowful fate. She sat by the window and looked at the people passing by, but she took little interest in the sight, and was in that unhappy state when the future seems to contain nothing pleasant. At length, Mr. Martin came home. His nose was as radiant as ever, and there was little doubt that he had celebrated his capture in the manner most agreeable to him. "'So you're here, are you?' he said. "'I thought you wouldn't run away after what I told you. It'll be a bad day for you and your rascal of a brother if you do. What have you been doing?' "'Sitting by the window. "'Where's the other little girl? "'Why don't you go and play with her instead of moping here?' "'I don't like her,' said Rose. "Pears to me you're mighty particular about your company,' said Martin. "'Maybe she don't like you any better.' "'To this, Rose didn't reply. "'But Mrs. Waters, who just then chanced to enter the room, did. "'Your little girl abused my fanny,' she said, "'and I had to forbid them playing together. "'I found them fighting together out in the backyard.' "'It wasn't my fault,' said Rose. "'Don't tell me that,' said Martin. "'I know you of old, miss. "'You're a troublesome lot, you and your brother. "'But now I've got you back again. "'I mean to tame you. "'See if I don't.' "'I hope you will,' said Mrs. Waters. "'My Fanny is a very sweet dispositioned child, "'just like what I was at her age, "'and she never gets into no trouble with nobody "'unless they begin to pick on her, "'and then she can't be expected to stand still and be abused.' "'Of course not,' said Martin. "'Your little girl attacked her and tried to stop her playing with the cat. "'What did you do that for, miss?' said Mr. Martin menacingly. "'She threw the cat into the cistern,' said Rose, "'and I was afraid she would drown. "'What business was it of yours? "'It wasn't your cat, was it?' "'No.' "'It was my daughter's cat,' said Mrs. Waters, "'but she tells me she didn't throw her into the cistern. "'It's my belief that your little girl did it herself.' "'Just as likely as not,' said Martin with a hiccup. "'Hark, you, you miss,' he continued, "'steadying himself by the table on which he rested his hand, "'for his head was not altogether steady. "'I've got something to say to you, "'and you'd better mind what I say. Do you hear?' Rose didn't answer. "'Do you hear, I say?' he demanded in a louder tone, "'frowning at the child. "'Yes. "'You'd better, then, just attend to your own business, "'for you'll find it best for yourself.' You've begun to cut up your shines pretty early, but you don't do it while I'm here. What are you sniveling about? For Rose, unable to repress her sorrow, began to sob. What are you sniveling about, I say? I want to go back and live with Rufy and Miss Manning, said Rose. Oh, do let me go. That's a pretty cool request, said Martin. After I've been so long hunting you up, you expect me to let you go as soon as I've got you? "'I don't mean to let you go back to Roofie,' he said, mimicking the little girl's tone. "'Not if I know it. Besides,' he added with a sudden thought, "'I couldn't do it very well if I wanted to. Do you know where your precious brother is?' "'Where?' asked Rose in alarm. "'Over to Blackwell's Island. He was took up this morning for stealing.' "'I don't believe it,' said Rose indignantly. "'I know he wouldn't steal.' "'Oh, well, have it your own way, then.' Perhaps you know better than I do, only I'm glad I'm not where he is. Of course, this story was all a fabrication, invented to tease poor Rose. Though the little girl didn't believe it, she feared that Rufus might have gotten into some trouble. Some innocent persons are sometimes unjustly suspected, and the bare possibility of such a thing was sufficient to make her feel unhappy. Poor child, but yesterday she had been full of innocent joy and happiness, and now everything seemed dark and sorrowful. When should she see Rufy again? That was the anxious thought that kept her awake half the night. End of section 8. Recording by Tori Falder.